Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the New Testament, from 1 Peter chapter 2, and we will be reading verses 4 through 10. Again, I invite you to turn there and follow along with me as I read. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We begin a new sermon series today on the church. Now, I will admit to you that it has not been completely fleshed out. So if over the course of the next several weeks, maybe months, certainly not years, if it seems a bit disjointed, it's probably because it is. But that is due to the fact that I have struggled to put on paper all of the things that have fallen upon my heart over the last few years, and increasingly over the last many months. And what has been percolating in me is a concern for the church that some may consider to be ill-founded since the church has been chugging along for 2,000 years and will continue to do so until Christ returns. But those two millennia are filled with episodes of trouble as the church has faced theological challenges, periods of intense persecution, divisions, and treacherous behavior from deep within to the degree that her mere survival is a faith-inducing testament to the truth of Jesus' statement, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I have no doubt that is true. 
But I also believe the truth of Jesus' statement, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The church has always been under attack to one degree or another. And those attacks, when they come from without, are to be expected. When they come from without, they are largely, boldly transparent. We can cognitively decipher the arguments that are being made by the world against the church, and we can rebut them with divinely inspired rhetoric. But the most insidious attacks that occur against the church are those that happen from within. As the evil one foments discord and disharmony and whispers discontent in the ears of some, and those who are spiritually immature demand to lead, and shepherds bring shame upon the name of Christ, And the flock neglects their regular gathering together to their own detriment. And all of this and more has resulted in what I perceive to be a discounted opinion of the church, a kind of apathetic attitude towards the people of God, not from the world. I care little about what the world thinks of the church. If the world should ever have a positive attitude towards the church, then praise the Lord. But what I am concerned about is when these apathetic attitudes take root in the hearts and minds of those who should be in love with the church the way the Lord is in love with his church. We have come to a place within the church in America where many Christians view the church from a consumerist perspective. We take her measure rather than the other way around. So does she offer all that we are expecting? Are the programs convenient for our schedule? Do the sermons make me feel good or guilty? Does the minister get us out on time? Do they offer my favorite music? But such an approach fails to understand an underlying biblical premise. We don't choose Christ. Christ chooses us. And he calls us to take up our cross daily and to follow him. Now, that is a far cry from how some consumerist Christians approach the church when the least little thing will cause them to abandon their post and stay home for months on end, unhappy and dissatisfied, and rather than return to their post, they begin to seek a different church that will make them happy, or they will abandon the church altogether. Can you think of a single time when Jesus was concerned about the personal happiness of his disciples? After Christ's resurrection, when he meets the disciples beside the sea for an early morning breakfast, what was the conversation like with Peter, who had denied three times that he even knew the Lord? 
Did Jesus say to him, Ah, Peter, listen, I am really concerned that you don't seem happy following me. Did Jesus apologize to him saying, Oh, listen, Peter, I am really sorry that you were put in that situation. That is all on me, bud. No. The question was, Peter, do you love me? Now, there may be those who would accuse me here of conflating love for the church with love for Christ. But when Peter answers that question and says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. How does Jesus respond? Then feed my sheep. If you love me, take care of the flock. If you love me, then tend to their needs. If you love me, then love them in a way that is consistent with the love that I have just demonstrated for them at Calvary. If you love me, be willing to sacrifice for them. If you love me, be willing to go the extra mile for them. If you love me, then practice that love towards them. And so here's my question. Does that characterize Christians in America? Do we love the church like that? Do we love the church like that? And if not, then how can we foster such a love for the church, for the brothers and sisters of Christ for whom he died? And this is what has brought me to this point of decision about a sermon series on the church because I believe that part of the issue stems from a biblical ignorance concerning the people of God. And if our love towards the people of God is lukewarm, then we have failed mightily in understanding our calling to follow Christ. When in Matthew 25 we hear the Lord describe that terrible moment in the final judgment when he separates the sheep from the goats and the Lord says to the sheep on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he then describes how those who were blessed by the Father behave. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we ever see you like this? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. It is characteristic of those who are born from above that they demonstrate love towards the brothers and sisters of Christ as though they are doing that towards Christ himself. And my goal over the next many weeks is to address the doctrine of the church with the hope that by the time we conclude, we will have a renewed love for the church, the people of God, the bride of Christ.
Now, to accomplish that will require that we approach the many facets of the church from a variety of scriptural directions. And that is to say that the text we choose to read on any given Lord's Day will be germane to our study, although it will not always be that we will deal with them expositorily. And that is, it will not be my intention to go verse by verse through that text and expound it that way. For example, the text from 1 Peter that we read a moment ago will probably be a passage that we will come back to on more than one occasion because there is much here that sustains the various facets of the doctrine of the church that we want to highlight and internalize. But as we begin to address the various facets of this doctrine, we will be turning to several passages from Scripture every Lord's Day to establish the doctrine firmly in our hearts and minds by the Word of God. So perhaps the best way to begin is to think for a moment about what we mean when we speak about the church. I said a moment ago that the church has been chugging along for the past 2,000 years, which is a bit erroneous when we think about the church the way that God thinks about the church. The Westminster Confession of Faith defines the church this way. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof and is the spouse the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. In other words, the membership role of the church contains the names of all those whom God has chosen in the past, the present, and the future to save through Jesus Christ. Now, when Westminster declares that the universal church is invisible, it simply means that there is no knowing on our part as to whom all the elect are. We can look in the pages of Scripture and say with some assurance who some of them are based upon the testimony that God provides, but there are countless numbers of Old Testament people whom God saved before the time of Christ that we will only begin to meet when we see them standing before the throne of God in heaven in worship. These are those like Abraham whom God graciously called to himself, and they too believed the promises of God and followed him in faith. They were not saved by good works. They were not saved by attaining some level of personal righteousness. They were made members of Christ's church by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Messiah alone. Before the Exodus, God spoke to Moses, informing him of what he would do, telling Moses to say to the Hebrews, I will take you to be my people, And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. 
And then following the Exodus, when this tremendous company of people arrives at Mount Horeb or at Mount Sinai, as it is sometimes called, we read earlier in the service from chapter 19 where God tells Moses to communicate to the people that if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I want you to listen to what Edmund Clowney says of this. He says, The church is defined by belonging to God. I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he says, The Bible uses many figures to describe this relation. Israel is God's son, his spouse, his vine, his flock. In the New Testament, the church is Christ's flock, branches of the true vine, his bride, his body, his temple, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, the house of God. All these images point to deep relationships and connections that center on the notion of our belonging to God. We are His possession. That first assembly of God's people at Sinai was then repeated during their years of wilderness wanderings. Whenever God told Moses to summon the people, and when they would hear the sound of the twin trumpets blasting, they would gather at the door of the tent of meeting and present themselves before Moses. And when they came into the promised land and God established his dwelling at Mount Zion, the assembly of God's treasured possession continued to gather together. Three times a year, the people were summoned to present themselves before the Lord and worship him there. But as we all know, Israel began to forsake the relationship by violating God's covenant. And it came to a breaking point where God spoke to them through his prophet Hosea, who was instructed to name one of his daughters Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. For God said, I will no more have mercy upon Israel. And then to name one of his sons Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For God said to Israel, you are not my people and I am not your God. And as devastating as that pronouncement was, the prophets were moved by the Spirit of God to announce that one day in the future there would be a time when a great assembly would be gathered at Zion that would include even the Gentiles. Now all that history comes to the mind of the disciples when Jesus begins to speak to them of building his church and declares that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the word he uses is ecclesia, which means the called out ones. In other words, the assembly of God's people at Sinai, those who were called out of Egypt, was a shadow of what was to come. It pointed forward to all those whom God would claim as his own possession, having set them free from their bondage to sin. 
It pointed forward to a most special relationship between God and man where God would dwell among us. It pointed forward to an assembly that will one day be made up of people from every tribe and nation and tongue, a multitude too great to count, and every one of them acknowledging that their presence before God's throne is not due to their spiritual achievements, but it is due to God's sovereign election. Now the Apostle Peter captures all of this historic imagery in his letter that was addressed to the elect exiles scattered across Asia Minor when he says in verses 9 and 10 of that second chapter, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, lo ami, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, lo ruhama, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, we need to ask ourselves, does that truth thrill my soul? Do I grasp how great is this privilege to be counted among this assembly? Do I comprehend what God has done by showing me mercy and claiming me as his own possession, setting me free from my sin, and calling me to be of service to him? Because if it does not, then I would be wise to take heed. Many of those who stood at the foot of Mount Horeb did not comprehend the great privilege that God had bestowed upon them. Even though their eyes witnessed impossible signs and wonders, even though their ears heard the thunderous voice of God coming from the smoke and the fire that engulfed that mountain, they grew impatient when Moses was delayed in his return. They were unhappy. And they rebelled against the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament letter speaks of this rebellion on more than one occasion, offering up this Old Testament example of those who hardened their hearts and refused to humble themselves before the Lord, urging his readers to not be like them, but instead to thankfully receive the grace that God was showing to them through Christ. And in that letter, he points out that Mount Horeb was just the beginning of the journey that the assembly of God's people were on. God did not make Mount Horeb his dwelling place, but they were led through the wilderness to the promised land where God then established a more permanent place for them to assemble and worship. And when that temple was complete, God's glory filled the temple. But the Hebrew writer does not leave it there. He points out to his readers that Mount Zion is also a shadow of what is to come. 
He says, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes clear that there is no salvation apart from responding to his gracious invitation by faith alone in Christ alone. To hear his call and to come to him is to be made part of this grand assembly of those who belong to him. It is to experience the spiritual cleansing that he provides by means of his shed blood. It is to experience the indwelling of his Holy Spirit as God takes up residence in every believer, fulfilling his promise to dwell with his people. And it is to come to the realization that before we ever had an inkling of God's love, he had already chosen us to be his own possession. If you have never come to a point of surrender to Christ, then I want to invite you to do that today. To become the next living stone being placed in this spiritual house that Christ is building. His church against which absolutely nothing will ever prevail. Would you please bow your heads with me that we might pray together.